0: The AMA Moving Medicine podcast highlights innovation and emerging issues that impact physicians and patients today. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's Moving Medicine video and podcast. Today, we're talking to Dr. John White, the chief medical officer of WebMD in Washington, D.C., about his new book, Take Control of Your Cancer Risk. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Dr. White, it's great to see you again. Believe it or not, the last time we talked was in August of 2020, when I think the only topic going on was about the pandemic. But in the meantime, you decided to write a book. Um, Let's start by talking about, you know, what prompted you kind of in this weird period of time to start writing a book about controlling your cancer risk?
1: And I will say it is great to see you again. I mean, August in many ways seems like an eternity ago. Todd, one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book was around this issue of myths. We're seeing around uh, the COVID pandemic, the misinformation, but there's also a lot of myths around cancer. And the biggest myth has been that it's primarily caused by genetics or just bad luck. And there's nothing that you can do about it. And the reality is only about 30% of cancer is caused by what we would say are inherited mutations or or family history. The rest is primarily influenced by lifestyle. And although nothing is 100% preventable, we have learned through science that you can reduce your risk by deciding what you eat, how much you exercise, your level of stress, the quality of your sleep, And these are all things you have control over.
0: So like, you're not kidding. When you say take control of your cancer risk, you got 70% of the factors there. And some of the things you just named And we're going to go into that in more detail. Uh, Why don't we start with, uh, you know, this outline, you you talked about what you eat, how much you sleep, you know, your exercise, your mental health, this is, you know, Uh, A pretty solid formula for, I guess, living well, uh, Mm -hmm. one would say in these days. Let's let's talk a little bit more in in detail. Um, Let's uh, for instance, let's go for food. Yeah. Uh, Tell us more.
1: Food is a biggie. So I'm glad you started with that. And I always try to get people to recognize that food basically is medicine. It, It truly is as powerful as a prescription drug. So Todd, when you're deciding whether you're going to eat those potato chips, or an orange, what are you going to choose? In general, you want to choose those things that are going to boost your immunity, boost your overall health. And and that is an orange. (laughs) Yeah, I know you, you eat healthy, but most people don't think about it that way. And they really think really foods impacting Uh, whether or not I get cancer. And and there's a couple of ways it does that. It does that because of its impact on our weight. And we do know that cancers relating to obesity are increasing, but it's also about the packaging of food, uh, what's in them in terms of preserving them, in terms of the way we cook them. So what science has shown us is that many types of cancer increase when you eat a lot of red meat, processed meat, refined grains, all the cookies and candies and, and pastries and sugary beverages, those increase your risk. So uh,
0: the fact that I kind of gave up r- refined sugar uh, 20 years ago, believe it or not, is a good sign, although my daughters may never forgive me uh, for the amount of attention I put on that. I mean, the data that you're starting to go through on these kind of food choices, what what are some of the compelling facts
1: And and that's impressive that you've given up those refined sugars. It's a great way in terms of your overall health, but it's also not just what we exclude, but what we also include. And that's where we have a lot of data about the role of fruits and vegetables, the vitamins that we have in them, the important minerals that are a component of fresh fruits and vegetables. And even if they were frozen. Fish is one of the biggest changes that people could make in terms of their diet. Only about one in five Americans have fish once a week, one in five. And if you think about it, fish is low in calories. So automatically you substitute that for a hamburger. You're going to lose weight over time. But it also has, as many listeners will know, these powerful antioxidants, And that's where science comes in to tell us it's not just, Oh, you should eat more fish. It's about that. It's going to help reduce um, what's called these free radicals that cause damage to our cells. It's going to help protect our DNA because when it comes down to it, cancer really is a disease that's of errors, meaning our cells divide all the time. And when cells divide incorrectly, it causes cancer to develop. So the more you can reduce those errors, those mistakes from happening in cell division, that's a good thing. And we know that certain foods can help with that.
0: Let me ask you a question about this idea of treating food like medicine, Mm -hmm. you know, for physicians out there, Mm -hmm. you know, what's your advice in terms of communicating that? How do you think that the message is going to be received? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, is, as you may know, the AMA has done a lot of work in trying to get physicians to do more around nutrition information and have published studies in JAMA and other uh, publications about how little physicians know about nutrition. And that's a big challenge because what typically do we say to patients? You need to lose weight. You need to eat healthy. You need to go to the gym. And if you ask them what to eat or what you should eat, they'd be very hard pressed to give you good information. And it's almost like the field of diabetes education where Medicare had to create really a whole separate system of diabetes educators to help patients figure out what to do and to be able to give them information over time. At the end of the day, what what I hear from patients is they want actionable steps. Tell me what to do, doc. That's, That's what they'll say. Tell me what to eat. Tell me what not to eat. And it takes a lot of time and physicians have to figure out how do they work that into their practice? Cause we're so focused on treating the high blood pressure. We're so focused on treating the high cholesterol, uh, and using medicines to treat it because we can get a pretty good effect after a week or two of medications, lifestyle changes can take weeks or months.
0: Yeah. They're hard. To get um, uh, food, you know, it's f- obviously very hard. There's uh, billions and billions of dollars spent on trying to get people to eat different things. Um. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. How about exercise? I mean, who doesn't know that exercise is good for you?
1: Right, and who regrets going to the gym or going for a run? Do you ever say after you did it, I wish I didn't go, you know, how do you feel? You feel great. Like you're king of the world. You can do anything. And it's that release of endorphins, those feel good hormones that we know about that are, you know, helping us feel good. The issue in cancer prevention is it is about some level of intensity, doing it at moderate intensity. And I'm sure many of our listeners know patients who walk 10,000 steps a day, and say, why aren't I losing weight? You know, why, why aren't I feeling better? And, and I congratulate them for doing 10,000 steps. They, they have a focus, but they're not sweating. They're not putting an effort in. And in some ways I wish they might only walk for 10 or 15 minutes twice a day. And every minute or two do some power walking or consider, you know, high intensity, um, training to get that heart pumping. That's what you need to do to get a cancer prevention benefit. Do
0: you, uh, just curious, because, you know, I would say the first line of defense, when you talk to, you know, anybody or you read things, they'll Mm -hmm. just say, you know, eat better and exercise more. You know, is there underlying data that kind of gives you the guardrails here and tells you, you know, what you said? Yeah, Please we have. to tell me what to do.
1: <laughs> we have new, numerous studies in terms of ARP has done a bunch of studies um, in the past, looking specifically at diet, the role of red meat, the role of processed foods. We've seen the same in terms of the role of whole grains and low fat dairy. And it's the same in exercise in the American Cancer Society in terms of their recommendations are based on science. Now, it's hard to be fair in terms of saying that this is what exercise did to reduce your cancer risk. Exactly. This is the same, you know, for food, but it's really that, that range of activities that you're doing in terms of eating healthy, uh, exercising, you know, several times a week, that's going to improve your overall cancer risk. And, you know, no one challenges it for heart disease, right? We call it cardio, (laughs) Even the name is implied. And we know the benefit of exercise in terms of its impact on the heart. It's the same type of benefit in terms of really protecting ourselves, protecting our DNA, which is basically, you know, the way that cancer, uh, gets, you know, on the move it's again, back to that creating errors in cell division.
0: Well, let's let's talk about something. Well, on the other end of exercise, which is about sleep, yeah. and this has obviously been a big issue in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are not sleeping very well, uh, and uh, I think you know. I think just the the emphasis on sleep and the quality of sleep mm-hmm. is something I'm reading a lot about. You know, what should physicians uh, be communicating to patients, and what's the science on sleep and cancer prevention? Yeah.
1: There is a wealth of science that has been created over the past decade. And granted, when I was in medical school, we didn't really talk about sleep. And I mean, you don't even get sleep in medical school and residency. And there's almost like a bravado effect, like, oh, I can live on five hours of sleep or four hours sleep. No, you can't because it builds up over time in terms of its impact. And the impact really is on the role of cortisol, melatonin and other hormones, that circadian rhythm that gets disrupted, that then creates problems in cell division. Fascinating report out of the Netherlands years ago, or might've been Denmark, We am gonna have to check now, where they looked at shift workers and the incidence of hormone dependent cancers, breast cancer, prostate cancer, And they saw an increase, particularly in breast cancer in those persons who worked these odd shifts, right? So you work at night, then you come back, you know, in the day and have to go to sleep and you don't do that. And they saw a significant increase in breast cancer that they ultimately compensated women who were shift workers and had breast cancer. I mean, the correlates are there, the hormonal aspects are there in, in terms of the science. We've learned that sleep isn't your brain turning off uh and you, you go dormant. You're still flushing out mm-hmm. the lymphatic system. You're you're getting rid of toxins, you're resetting, and and that's overall important for your overall health as well as cancer prevention.
0: Well, uh, your kind of fourth component of this is mm-hmm. just another thing that's uh, really taking a bit of a hit during mm-hmm. the pandemic. And that is on mental health. Yeah. Um, you know, you say in the book, it's very important to recognize the, the mm-hmm. mind body connection. Mm-hmm. What is the correlation with cancer?
1: Yeah. And we really have known about the mind body connection probably for a thousand years, but no one really wants to put it into science. And if you think about it, when you're stressed, many people can feel it physically. the the palpitations, the sweaty palms, the abdominal issues. There's no doubt that there is an impact on the mind and body. It's the issue of chronic daily stress that's impacting your cancer risk. And what we've also learned about cancer in the last decade or so is that in many ways, it's a disease of inflammation. And we all know that inflammation is bad. And when we're stressed, we make errors in our daily life, right? So if we have a toxic boss, it's hard to get your work done because you're stressed. If you're rushed to do something, you make mistakes. It's the same thing for the cells in our body. If your cells are under this state of constant inflammation, right? And you're trying to divide and, and create an environment where you're not getting damaged, Constant stress is gonna make it much harder and you're gonna make those mistakes. There's also a concept where cancer cells have to have a home to survive in your body and and reproduce. And, And chronic inflammation provides that environment for your body, for cancer cells to replicate and to reproduce and to take over your normal cells. And we've seen that over time. So again, it's these multiple aspects of your lifestyle that overall are going to contribute to your personal cancer risk.
0: I think, you know, the four pillars that you, you mm-hmm. point out, you know, uh, eating, mm-hmm. uh, eating right, sleeping right, uh, mental health, um, and exercise yeah. like that is the recipe, uh, again, uh, kind of a mm-hmm. classic recipe, uh, you know, how did the pandemic uh, affect this? Maybe it's actually really good timing for your book because I can't imagine it's been a positive effect.
1: uh, I think it's made made it much harder. I mean, we we know first of all that many people delayed their cancer screenings and some of them are never going to come back to have it screened or going to come back many years. And there's estimates that at least 10,000, you know cases of cancer will present much further along than they would have because of delayed screenings because of the pandemic. But for many people, and, and it's been estimated that, you know, the majority of Americans have gained at least 10 pounds of weight. It's been, you know, we've been sitting around on Zoom calls all day, but we've also been eating what typically are the comfort foods for us, the ice cream, the, the baked goods. No one seems to be eating hummus and carrots.
0: Yeah, I'm seeing a lot, a <laughs> and, lot fewer pictures in my Instagram feed yeah. of people's bread. That's right. Um, so maybe we've turned a corner on hopefully, that. Hopefully,
1: hopefully, but it's also still to get patients to see that correlation. And, and I've had many patients with type two diabetes, and I tell them that, you know, if they lose weight, they likely could, you know, reduce the amount of medication that they're on. And I do have patients that say to me, well, I've been overweight, you know, for 20 years. So, so it can't be related to my weight. Cause I've only had diabetes for two years and they're not making that. It's the the daily choices over time that overall impact your health. So, you know, I never say to patients, you can't have, you can never have a hamburger. You can never have French fries. You can never have ice cream, but you can't be having them every day. You can't be having them three times a week and think that there's no impact for your overall health and that habits are formed over time. So people say, Oh, you know, I don't, I don't like, Uh, fish. I don't like, you know, vegetables. I had a patient once who said to me, I don't like water. And I knew watching there's no taste to it. Like, come on, you don't like water. Uh, but I convinced her she liked soda. So I convinced her, why don't you try sparkling water first? And it doesn't happen after the first time or the second time or the third time. You know, it can take seven, 10 times of tasting something before you decide whether or not you like it. it. It's the same thing with physical activities. I've had patients say, do you think I should, you know, try swimming? And I'll ask them if they like swimming and they'll be like, not really. You know, it's a lot of work. They got to find a pool. They got to get, I'm like, why are you choosing swimming? You're not going to stick with it. You have to choose something that you enjoy. It doesn't mean having to go to the gym or even leaving your home. But, but the challenge Todd is that as physicians, we're not empowered to have that type of time to talk to patients about the changes that they need to make. It's much easier for me to say, have you heard your colonoscopy yet? You know, have you had your mammogram? You're due for that and forget, okay, we can't screen for a lot of other cancers. That makes it even more important to adopt these lifestyles because we've all seen patients and it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. We tell them to lose weight eat healthy. We don't give them any guidance. And then they come back six months, a year, their weight keeps going up. And we think, see, like people, don't do it. They, they won't follow it, but we really don't empower them. And, and again, it's partly that we're not well-skilled in terms of what's the specific information that we should give them.
0: Uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of confusion about that. Mm -hmm. So, Uh, That kind of guidance would be extremely valuable. You know, in addition to that, you know, and in closing, what do you hope that physicians are going to take away from a book like this? What kind of changes would you like to see them make? I
1: I hope many of my colleagues realize that the pandemic for many patients has really reinforced for them the importance of their own health and self-care. And realize at the end of the day, the job isn't what matters. The commute, you know, maybe worse than you actually thought. And you need to focus on your own health, your mental health or your physical health. So I, I think patients are going to be more attuned to this messaging of what they need to do. And what we've learned during the pandemic are that physicians are a trusted source, that that's where people are going to for credible information. And now's the time to really try to shift the paradigm from the sick care system that we have, where we're so focused on giving medications, where we're so focused on treating the disease as it's further along, and maybe try to shift some of that time and effort to preventing disease and illness. I mean that that's a much bigger issue. And I know the AMA has been working on that for many years, but that's what's ultimately going to improve overall health of society and, and give people, you know, more quality in in their lives as well as length of their lives. That's what really matters.
0: See, and I thought this was just the recipe to keep get me back into my suits by the time I start seeing people again. That's right. But Nobody's going to wear uh, suits
1: anymore, Todd.
0: I, I, <laughs> I have a closet full of, uh, of them that would argue otherwise. Um, but uh, it is good to know. And it is a very empowering message to say, you've, you have a big control over yeah. uh, this kind of cancer risk. Uh, and I'll look forward to reading the book. Uh, thanks for joining us, Dr. White. I really appreciate it. Uh, Take Control of Your Cancer Risk is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and a number of other retailers. A link can be found in the description of today's episode. Check it out. Uh, we'll be back soon with another moving medicine video and podcast. Be sure to click subscribe on AMA's YouTube channel, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, where you can find all our videos and podcasts at ama-assn.org podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Please take care. This has been Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts.